from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Two geniuses have commented on college education and its place in our hearts. First, a little-known fella named Albert Einstein, who said the value of a college education is not the learning of many facts, but the training of the mind to think. And the other genius, whose words have been gifted so often on graduation day, Dr. Seuss, of course. Oh, the places you will go. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. You'll be on your own, and you know what you know. You are the one who'll decide where you go. Welcome to an exploration of university plans to open this fall while managing through a pandemic. I'm Bill Curtis. We've got two lauded and renowned presidents of universities with us on today's panel. David W. Lebron, president of Rice University in Houston, Texas, for 16 years. He's credited with overseeing an international and diversified student body growth of over 30% during his tenure. And he is shouldering the responsibility of a combined student body of around 7,000, including under- and postgraduate students, as well as over 800 faculty. Prior to taking the helm at Rice, David was the dean of Columbia Law, and he graduated from Harvard Law. Thank you for joining us, President David LeBron. Pleasure. E. Gordon G. Well, he's the award-winning, internationally renowned president of West Virginia University. He's also served as president of Ohio State University from 1990 to 97, and then they pulled him back again in 2007 to 2013. His career also included leading the University of Colorado, Brown University, and Vanderbilt. His first stint as president of West Virginia University was back in the 1980s, and they seem to have pulled him back in to do it again. His JD and EdD degrees are from Columbia University. And here's one I didn't expect. He served on boards, including the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So many other accolades and honors we simply don't have time to list. But G's daughter, Rebecca, is secretary of the Louisiana Department of Health. So he's got all kinds of perspective for today's subject matter. And on his shoulders stands an undergraduate and postgraduate enrollment of almost 30,000 and 1,500 faculty. Thank you for joining today, E. Gordon G. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. And of course, our co-hosts connecting through Zoom, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, and worldwide lecturer, Professor Ed Larson. Nice to see you again, Ed. Thank you for having me here. And President D., it's just great to see your bow tie again. (laughs) And of course, Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney who's represented U.S. interests to high-level government officials all over the world. Jane, nice to remotely see you today. It's always good to be here. So, President G, tell us what led to you serving on the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. My real interest was the fact that I love rock and roll. And so, uh, and I actually was on the selection committee, if you can believe it, uh, that would uh, select inductees. So it was uh, it was fun while it lasted, but eventually I had to get off the board. Uh, you've been quoted saying that your primary focus is how to bring students back to campus while taking all necessary public health and safety measures. So while you consider all the possibilities for the opening of your schools in fall, what are the factors that drive your decision-making? 
the way that I view it is the fact that uh, I view it as a hammer and a dance. We've had we've had the hammer. We've shut down. We have done everything we possibly can to flatten the curve, but uh, both uh, for the psychology of our students, for the psychology of our country, we've got to get into a dance. We've all taken the flu vaccine, but eighty eight thousand people have died of the flu this year. We all drive cars, and fifty thousand people have died in car accidents. So. We're going to have to learn to dance with this, and so we, we have to take appropriate precautions, but we cannot continue to not provide the kind of educational excellence, however we do it, um, with appropriate masks, distancing, uh, making our classes smaller, a variety of other things. But we, but we do have to uh, move to this notion of creating an environment in which students can actually learn from each other and uh, within the classroom. Uh, David, can we ask you, in, as you open up, what are some of the needs of the students that you're looking to preserve? Well, the students get a tremendous amount out of things that occur uh, outside of the classroom. Or, and e- even in the classroom, those minutes where you enter a class or you're leaving a class and a casual conversation with the professor, uh, we have one of the lowest student-faculty ratios of, of any university. So it's the informality and the, and the community. And, and we know from our surveys that students highly value their classes, but they see the classes themselves as constituting 25% of the value of their education. And so it's all those other things, the, the mentoring they can receive, the student organizations, leadership, the entrepreneurial opportunities. And that community also supports them academically. And and so one of the things that we're observing online is that some of the most vulnerable students are the first generation and the low-income students. And and one of the reasons for that, it's those students who really need that sense of community around them to support them. And and so I I think, you know, I, I agree with Gordon that our students are really anxious to get back. And I I think this uh, experience we're going through is going to fundamentally change higher education, but it's not going to diminish the demand for the on-campus experience that the students really uh, want and love. Ed Larson, I know that you have a definite opinion about online education versus being on campus and, and experiencing your courses in person and, of course, living on campus as well. You want to dive in here a bit? Uh, I te- I'm teaching a, a Zoom class right now, and midway through last semester, I converted from teaching a, a live class, and it's just not the same experience. I, I'm trying to adapt. Uh, students are an awful lot happier now than they were in the in the spring because it's redesigned, but it's not the same experience for the students. It's not the same energizing experience for the teacher. In fact, it's very flat for a teacher, as both of our two presidents have said interacting with each other in the classroom, seeing eye to eye, because it's not quite the same of watching somebody on Zoom. I agree with both of them that the classroom learning is only a a small part of what goes on in in university overall. People are coming to school for the entire experience, which is social as well as technical learning. Uh, Gordon, do you agree with Ed? Well, I've, I've never thought that anyone could get a real education in their pajamas. 
the way I think about it is uh, the most important learning experience. And this is not to in any way uh, take away from our faculty, but it really is that 150 hours of of relationships. It's those late night pizza parties. It's all the conversations that take place. It is a social engagement. It's the human contact. So, and I believe with David that uh, that this virus is going to accelerate the change in higher education dramatically. I believe that we'll see many more of the hybrid kind of uh, models where some of it is online, some of it is in person, a variety of other things. But I do believe that at least for the vast majority of students, um, the educational experience is that which takes place in in the brick university in some form or other. So, David, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot a little bit, because uh, I'd like to take this from the parents' perspective for a minute. There's no question that parents are looking for excellence in academics when they send someone to Rice. Also, dorm living is part of the education process, and you kind of feel that you're you're passing your kids on to a somewhat safe, reasonably supervised environment where your kids can learn how to get along in society. Would you agree that that's one of the main goals of parents as they bring their students to rice? Yeah, I mean, this is a critical time in the lives of our students and particularly our undergraduates, this, this time when they're, you know, typically 18 to 22 year old, and you really want them to learn a lot of things. It's one of the reasons diversity is so important to us, is we want our students having that experience in a very diverse environment. But, I, you know, I, I want to both agree with what's been previously said, but maybe also qualify it a little bit. Uh, we have uh, online degree programs that we offer in computer science and in business. Uh, those are excellent programs. They're offered for the same price as the, as the res- residential degree. I think what's important is that you tailor the delivery uh, to the particular mode. I, I think, as Ed said, you know, going on all of a sudden in the spring, and we went from three courses to, to something over 1,900 courses in the space of two weeks. Uh, we were well prepared for that because we're already engaged in the online space. And so we have the kind of training and resources that others have mentioned. But at the same time, we, we heard from instructors. We heard from an instructor in art who has said initially, you know, I can't take art instruction online. I can't do that. And yet by the time she got instruction and, and went through the process, she said, you know, I, I've learned new things about teaching in this process. Uh, We're hearing from students and faculty who say, you know, students are participating in different ways. Students who didn't used to participate are now participating in this online environment. We heard from students about the online delivery of services where where they're saying, can we keep this as an available channel to us? We like being able to access some of these services online. So, Gordon, I wonder if I could really put you on the spot for a minute. There was recently, frankly, a Rice student body president quoted on CNN comparing student housing with cruise ships. Tell us a little about how you propose to manage students in dorms and also within your local community. Well, I think that um, that, of course, is is a, a, is an immense challenge. 
We uh, are already putting in place a lot of protocols and also tracing uh, opportunities. We have one of our researchers has actually figured it out a way on, on the telephone app how we can track these students and those that are maybe coming down with uh, with some sort of uh, a fever or other things that they immediately that we can immediately get to them. And then also, I, I, I love what David said because I do think that I do think that there are going to be a certain number of uh, parents who don't want their kids to start off uh, in that kind of a petri dish, if you want to call it that. And so, there. So we need to make uh, this kind of flexible approach for their education available to them. There's no doubt that the coronavirus is going to uh, is going to uh, crop up on our campus. The question is not that. The question is, do we panic or do we deal with it? And that's what we're trying to uh, determine and try to get ourselves prepared for. But what's really different about this is the length of time and the uncertainty at every stage. And so what's really critical here is that, frankly, we're constantly prepared to change course. Back in the spring, within 24 hours, I had to announce a complete reversal of something I'd announced earlier. But I have constantly been saying, people, we are going to reevaluate consistently reevaluate. And so, you know, right now what we would say is we're going to have social distancing in the dining dining halls, recognizing that that people who live together as roommates are like a family and they're going to be in contact with with each other and so we'll have to measure the way that people come into the dining halls. That probably also means that we'll need to rethink the way classes are scheduled. And then we also have to recognize the particular populations that are vulnerable. And frankly, the the People, our food service workers are more vulnerable than our students. And we have to figure out what are we going to do to make sure that our food service workers and others are are protected. Are you, Gordon, finding any challenge with some of your faculty not really wanting to re-engage this fall? Yeah, absolutely. I think that some of them are very fearful. And uh, so um, we have to recognize that. And if someone just feels very, very vulnerable and does not really want to be teaching a course, then we have to accommodate that too. By that, I mean, if they're going to teach, then maybe we have to put it, put it online or do some other kind of a format or change uh, the faculty perspective or the faculty person. Anything we have to do to make certain we're providing a broad-based and excellent academic experience is what we're going to do. So it's like planning the Normandy invasion. We're just going to have to be very cognizant that things will change, but, but it's very complex. I think it's probably relatively safe for the students. What do you do about the students when it's time to go home and they have grandparents and, and others? I don't know that there's a way to sort of quarantine them for 10 days or two weeks. Have, have either of your universities thought about that fact? There are a lot of different scenarios that, that could develop. We could see, as we saw in the spring, students going home quick, quickly and making fast decisions around that. And we have to be very prepared. When we did this in the spring, we gave our students lots of notice because that seemed to th- be the thing that's appropriate under the circumstances. And then we have to recognize that for a variety of reasons, it, going home may not be the best thing for students. And so we had students who, for one reason or another, felt their home environment uh, was, would not be supportive of online learning, and we permitted them to stay on campus. We have international students uh, who, for a variety of reasons, might not want to come home, including, as it turns out, the difficulty of coming back. 
And so that's a little bit the adaptability aspect of it. It's, it's, it's not enough to say, here's our plan and everybody's subject to the plan. It's here's the plan. Here's how most people are going to be treated under the plan. And here's the process for applying to be treated differently than most people are treated under the, under the plan. And all of those are critical all the time in an academic institution. We're going to take a quick break, if you don't mind. And when we come back, we're going to look at the other side of the question and how colleges and universities are doing from a financial perspective now and how they're meeting the challenges that this pandemic has brought. We'll see you in a minute. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? We're back. And, uh... Guys, one of your associates in another school said to the New York Times this week that if schools were to remain closed this fall, it's not a question of whether institutions will be forced to permanently close. It's how many. How has this time with the coronavirus affected your institutions financially? Well, I'll start with that. Uh, you know, large public universities, of course, are uh, are uh, dependent on a couple of things. First of all. Uh, we're dependent on tuition. Our, our institution, which is about a $4 billion institution, uh, only about 10% of our money comes from the state. So therefore, tuition, the other revenue-generating aspects of an institution are very important. And so those depend on on numbers. Those depend on retention. Those depend on uh, on uh, the quality of the delivery systems we're able to put together and how we're able to uh, to manage that financially. Um, we have certainly prepared for significant financial disruption. About six or seven years ago, I chaired a, a, the American Council of Education, a commission on the future of the American University, all of them. And, and at that time, it was readily apparent to me from our commission's work that the small tuition-driven, particularly private institutions, although some publics also, are very vulnerable and so I think that there is the possibility of, of somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand institutions that may not be able to survive this out of the 5,000 universities and colleges that wow, we have in this country. I, I think it is a significant, significant uh, potential of economic disruption for a number of small institutions. Ed? I think it's going to fundamentally change education, higher education. The successful universities are going to expand. As a historian, I look back to what did the Great Depression do for education? Well, what we saw was higher education expanded during the Great Depression uh, because more people went. The percentage went up from about five or six to about 10. But smaller private universities sort of died away. And what exploded were the high quality top elite schools like the Rices and Harvards of the world and the state universities just exploded. Places like Ohio State tripled in size, I think, during the Depression. I think just like during the Depression, we're going to see a growth in the, the elite institutions and the state universities, and we're going to see a weakening of the, the sort of middle, lower level private schools. Are you allowed to use your school's endowment funds in case of an emergency like this? 
we draw about 40% of our resources from the endowment and tuition accounts for something like 20% and undergraduate tuition is only somewhere around maybe 13% of our, of our overall budget. Regarding the question of the endowment, you know, there, there is this sense of uh, endowment as a piggy bank, a rainy day fund or emergency fund. That is the one thing it is not. Right? The endowment is there to sustain the university year in and year out into the future. And the necessity is to make sure the resources are there to continue providing the, the same level, although adjusted for inflation, that it has provided in the past. Otherwise, we won't be able to deliver. What the endowment can do is enable us to smooth the transition. So if we think we've lost significant resources on the endowment or other things, we don't necessarily have to turn around and say, we need an immediate substantial reduction in our endowment payout. We can phase into that reduction. And that's what we did in 2008, 2009, where we had a substantial market correction and a, a, a very significant recession in the country. And we had to reduce our expenditures at that period of time. Now, at the same time, we also increased our income. That was, we had already put in then a plan to grow uh, so we were in the midst of growing our student population 30%, and that turned out to help us a great deal under those circumstances. So the challenge now is to sort of phase into the reductions we need using some limited flexibility in the endowment, cut expenses where we can, and grow revenues where we can. But, but this fundamental notion that the endowment is a rainy day fund or piggy bank that the university can just go to it's just fundamentally wrong in terms of what an endowment actually is and how it is used to foster the success of a college or university. On this show, we very often endeavor to get uh, multiple sides of a question to see the other side's position. Uh, students have a bit of a groundswell where they're complaining that their education might not be worth the tuition that they're paying. And part of the support that you really need is students willing, and their parents, to pay the kind of tuition necessary to keep the schools vibrant. How are you communicating as presidents of both your schools with the base of parents and students that have those issues foremost in their minds? We're not bullish on tuition. In fact, we will not raise tuition this year. And, um, and then, of course, that, that represents potentially a significant loss of, uh, of revenue for us. And, um, but, but we think, and particularly as a land-grant institution in a small state, we think it's very important for us to make certain the institution remains very, very affordable. Now, the issue of cost and quality is immensely important in these kinds of institutions that I'm in right now. And so we, we work very hard to keep our, um, our cost to the families as low as we possibly can. And there is a, a real need for a certain level of financial viability so that you can function. It's not a desire to charge parents full price for an education that may be rather different this year. We don't charge full price by, by any measure. We don't charge full price in terms of what the market will bear. And we don't charge full price in terms of the cost of providing the education. The tuition actually covers perhaps a little more than half of the cost of providing 
the education. We have very aggressive scholarship and financial aid programs for us, for any student from a family earning you know, less than I think $130,000, they pay nothing toward their tuition, come to, to Rice. And, and so everything we do in effect loses money. Uh, uh, the one exception to that really has to be uh, the, the endowment. Uh, but it's really vitally important that we continue doing what we're, we're what we contribute to society, and and we think we're ultimately about three things, which are excellence, opportunity, and impact, uh, and and all of those come at, at a very high cost. And and you can see now more than ever in this pandemic, and every time there's a, a crisis of this kind, what really becomes apparent is the importance of the universities, and particularly the research universities. This problem will be either solved by universities, or if not directly solved by universities, as a result of knowledge that came out of universities. Both Gordon and David, the statistic is that education employs about 3 million people and accounts for $600 billion annually in spending in our GDP. What's the message that you would like to send to Congress as they hack out the next stimulus package on how they should consider structuring the helping of colleges and universities? I think our institutions of higher ed are, are engines of, of opportunity and, and engines of impact for our, our society. And if we're, we're building in difficult times, enabling people to shift gears in some sense, people already out in the workforce to, to get education they need to, to go into the sectors where they can be more productive into the, in the future, enabling students to, to go to schools who might not have other opportunities right now. And, and that's the full range of institutions. I, th- I think taking a special care of the historically black colleges and universities, uh, which have provided incredible opportunities to people in the, who haven't otherwise had those opportunities, they continue to play an important and vibrant role in our society. We want to be internationally competitive, supporting the research universities of this country. And I, I have admittedly a, a self-interest there. But that's where the new ideas and new technologies and new industries come from. And that needs to be invested in. And that's an area where we've been losing ground. We're about to enter a, a kind of new stage for our country. And new industries are going to emerge. And people are going to be thinking about problems in different ways. And a lot of the solutions for that are going to be coming from our universities. So if, if we really want to invest in the in the future, whether that future is a few years from now or whether that future is 50 or 100 years from now, these are vital institutions to, to invest in. Obviously, David makes a very strong case of which I fully concur, which is the power of the uh, universities. We are the economic engine in many instances, but I also think that there is this reality. And I, now I'm going to talk about the, from the large public university and particularly the land-grant institutions, that we need to be much more cognizant of the fact that we have responsibility for our communities and uh, that we have responsibility for the economic development um, in the state, not simply by creating ideas, but also by generating uh, uh, economic vitality uh, through a number of things that universities should and could be doing. The truth of the matter is, is universities live in a bubble. They're quite arrogant. They're very good at telling other people how to do their business, not terribly good about doing business themselves. And so I think that this pandemic is going to bring to the fore, uh, through federal funding and through state funding, 
um, and David used the word impact. People people want to see that their university has an impact on their lives, that it's embedded in their hearts and minds that that university is making a difference. And so I think that any package is going to have to look at the immediate impact that universities can have um, in job creation and a variety of other uh, activities that go to the heart of the economy of the of the state or of the nation. And that, that's, you know, even though we're comparatively small, uh, we're located in the great city of Houston. We're deeply involved in the, in the city. We're building uh, an innovation hub uh, near the center of the city to, to foster new technologies and industries in Houston. And I think that's true of almost all of us now. We, I think, as Gordon says, we're all deeply engaged in our, our communities, and we can provide a lot of that uh, vibrancy. But first and foremost, to invest in the opportunities for our students to make sure that, that all potential students have the means to go to our institutions. And it's a vast variety of institutions. And then I think uh, second is this uh, possibility of the sort of the short-term job creation. How do we work with industry? Uh, what are the ways to invest in that collaboration that can really uh, foster rapid development? And then third, investing in fundamental knowledge. It turns out location does matter. Where ideas emerge does matter. Where new technologies emerge does matter. And if we want to be as fast on the other side of, of this crisis and really a, a vibrant, growing nation, we need to continue to be the place where new ideas and new technologies emerge. We need to be the place where solutions to pandemics are going to emerge. We need to be the place where new ways of doing things virtually and online are going to emerge. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. There's no doubt this is an absolutely crucial subject for parents, for the students that we see as the future of our society. Let's keep in mind we don't tend to be long-term thinkers in this country. And I think that's one of our greatest failings. Things will change, but we know that this isn't forever. We know that we're trying to figure out a way to get to the other side. And we wish Gordon G. West Virginia University and David LeBron from Rice University, we wish you much success this fall. Thanks so much for joining Ed Larson and Jane Albrecht and myself. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.